Note that he's going to offer on November 9th from 8.30 to 12, two sessions. One is evangelism for the non-evangelists and then witnessing to your family, bring the gospel home. So pray for that. One of our visions is to equip all of our church to share their faith. It's part of being a follower of Christ to learn how to share with others. Now, we hope that you already have that desire because if you believe the gospel, if you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven, then of course you have a desire, but we need practical tools for how to do that. And so be in prayer for that. We hope many of you will be able to come. A couple other things real quick. We are starting a Sunday morning prayer group every Sunday morning at 8.30 in room 242. We'd love to have you pray. Charles Spurgeon used to call that the engine room. While he was preaching, there were actually people that would pray in his, in his um, basement of the church. So look forward to, to seeing God work through our prayers. I want to invite you to turn in your Bible now to the Gospel of Mark chapter 12. If this is your first time here or if you forgot your Bible, we always give out Bibles here. So please raise your hand if you want to borrow one or you're really welcome, and we'd love to have you keep the Bible because, as Benjamin prayed, we believe the Bible is so helpful and life-changing and powerful if you're willing to listen to it. So certainly we, we welcome your questions, we welcome discussion, and we're happy to have you here. So we are in the midst of the Gospel of Mark. We've called this series Discovering Christ and then clarif- or Clarifying Jesus, Committing to the Journey. But the idea here is in the second half of the book, Jesus is talking about what it looks like to be a believer, right? If I sign up and I get on the highway to heaven, what does that look like? And so Christ is explaining to us some of the implications of discipleship. We, we say frequently our vision is to advance the gospel and then make disciples who make disciples. So we're learning from Jesus what it means to be a follower. So the last few weeks we've been in chapter 11 and following, and this is in the last week of Jesus' life. And one of the things that we've noticed is that when Jesus came into this beautiful, glorious temple that he basically was telling them, the temple's temporary, we're going to shut this thing down. And we're going to see some more about that this morning. But last week we saw that Jesus was being confronted wave after wave of leaders trying to trap him. Well, what about this? What about this? And each one, he just dismissed them with with a powerful biblical answer that at the end of verse 37 of chapter 12, it says the great crowd enjoyed listening to him, but verse 34 says no one would ask him any more questions. So now Jesus is sort of on the offense, and beginning in verse 38, he's in the temple, and he notices that there's a lot of guys in special religious robes. You see, at that time, if you were a scribe or a Pharisee, you had sort of a a uniform, this shouldn't be that weird because we see people today with their, their robes in religion or their little collars or something to mark them out. Hey, I'm clergy, right? I wouldn't say that's in and of itself wrong, but I think it's dangerous because what Jesus is going to expose us to, first of all, is the danger here of wanting to look religious without wanting to live that way. I think it's safe to say this. All of us probably want people to think that we're a better Christian than we are. Nobody wants people to think, I'm a lousy Christian. Say, oh, give me an example. Well, here's one. Have you ever had somebody ask you how you're doing, and you were maybe just doing lousy, you're mad at God, mad at the world, you just yelled at somebody, and they go, how are you doing? You go, fine. I'm well, fine, praise the Lord. Why do we do that? 
Because perhaps, I'm not saying everybody, but perhaps it's like, well, that's what good Christians do. And if I say, I'm not doing fine, I'm in a lousy mood, stop asking me, they might think I'm a bad Christian. So it can be much more dangerous, insidious, though, because sometimes people play games. You know how to play the game. You know what to say. You know how to show up at church. But then you have a, a, a secret life behind the scenes. So there's a couple things Jesus is going to point out here, and I think it'll help me and you to think through my own relationship with God. So he says in verse 38, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Now, these are special robes. These are religious robes. Look at me, right? They like respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Oh, scribe, father, rabbi, please don't come up to me or Bob or any of us and say, oh, reverend, right? Don't do that, okay? Because it's not appropriate. So Jesus says, they even love chief seats in the synagogues. Now, we have archaeological discoveries of synagogues back then. By the way, this, the teacher sat in a chair. I think we need to go back to that. We need to go back to the Bible, right? Remember how long I milked the wheelchair? I stayed in that thing. Bob's finally like, you know, Tom, you really should start standing. I'm like, oh, you know, I might, might need a few more weeks. So the speaker sat in a chair, but behind him were special seats for the most esteemed guests. And, we, you know, this isn't too far from home. We've, we've probably all been in churches where they have the platform and the, the parade of pomposity as we all, you know, the, the big leaders get to sit up in the front and look out over the congregation. It doesn't mean people are wicked that do that, but there's a temptation. He said, they love those seats. They love places of honor at banquets. But then Jesus says, let me let you in on a little secret, a little dirty secret about a lot of them. They are the ones who devour widows' houses. You're like, wait, what? What does that mean? Are they termites? No. They would prey on wealthy widows, and they would extort the money away from them for their own selfish ambition. In other words, they might sit down with this poor wealthy widow and say, oh, you know, the Lord has blessed you with so much, and I'd really like to encourage you as you think about where you're going to leave your money, we really think it would be a good idea to leave it to the temple. Leave it to the Lord's work. Now, in and of itself, that's not wrong. I'm not embarrassed to try to raise funds for the Lord's work. But what they were doing is they were actually taking this money. We have records of, of people who actually did this. It got all the way back to, to Caesar, that there were men who would extort wealthy Jewish widows and tell them, give all your proceeds to the temple. And then they were stealing it right? And Jesus is calling these guys out. But if that's not enough, right, they leave widow so-and-so's house and they come home and go, honey, we're going to get that second chariot after all. Well, where are we going to get the money? Don't worry about it. I got it covered. But then they arrive at the synagogue and they're the leader. So Jesus says, they extort these widows and for appearance sake, they offer longer prayer, long prayers. Can you imagine that? They just ripped off an old lady and they're stealing from them. They come to church. Eternal God, Thou art divine above all measure, and how grateful. And everybody's like, oh, they are so godly. And Jesus is going, don't buy it. And it's important for us to remember this, that the Bible says one day God will expose the motives of our hearts and the things that are done in secret. That's something you and I need to remember. That we can fool everybody else, but my motives... And my secret life, there's going to come a day when the game is over. 
And so it's, it's, it's not a good idea to live a secret life. It's a good idea to bring your sin out into the light and ask God to forgive you. We're not perfect. Because look what Jesus said about these people. He said, these will receive greater condemnation. Now, I don't know exactly what they mean by that. What, Jesus, what do you mean by that? Because the Bible teaches that if you're not a Christian, if your sins aren't forgiven, you are going to spend eternity in a place called the lake of fire, day and night, forever and ever, right? But on more than one occasion, Jesus spoke of certain people having a greater condemnation. Jesus said to one city, Chorazin, that he did miracles, and he goes, woe to you. You wouldn't even repent when I did miracles. If I did those miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. So he said, it'll be more tolerable for them in judgment. So you go, Tom, are you saying there are degrees of hell? Was Dante right? There are seven levels in the inferno? And I would say, yes and no. Dante was wrong in speculating about how many levels there are. But he was right in that the Bible teaches there are degrees of condemnation. Now, don't think that some people are going to get an air-conditioned hell, right? But it only makes sense to think that Satan's hell or Adolf Hitler's hell will be a greater and a more severe judgment. But then Jesus takes the opportunity to go, hey, let's watch what's going on here. It says, and he sat down opposite the treasury. Now, the treasury back then, in the temple, we know that there were six big boxes that people could give, right? They didn't pass the plate around. There were six locations in the temple where you could bring your money, and they were big boxes. And it's, it's weird when you think about it, because these boxes had metal in them. So when you're dropping your coins in, you're getting a ding, 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 kind of like when you play bop it. Ding, ding, ding. Whoa, wow. Look at, whoa, that guy, Dave and Busters, he really rang the bell, right? Now that in itself ought to go, hmm, wonder why they had it set up that way. But I love that Jesus took his seat opposite this. We do this. You ever go into the boardwalk? You get your popcorn or, you know, your, your pizza, and you just, you just watch people. It's fun. If they had benches in Walmart, I'd do this every week. Get a Slurpee, right? I just go, this is fun. But Jesus is intentional. He's watching people giving, right? And he's, he's seeing who's hitting the jackpot. Wow, look how much that guy put in, right? It says, he began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. Whoa. Hey, hey, check this guy out. Wow. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to her a cent, right? Probably couldn't even hear him. They just like, you know, did you even put something in there? It's a true story. I had someone told me, I'm ashamed of this, but I'm embarrassed to not give in church, so I fake it. I watch all of you now. <laughs> no, I can't. <laughs> you know, just drop the old hand in there. I didn't see anything fall out. Can you imagine? And there are churches, honestly, that don't pass an offering for that reason because Jesus said, don't let your, your right hand know what your left hand's doing. Don't, don't give to be seen by men. So some churches just have boxes in the back, right? We tried that, but people thought that was for the take from. You know, they were all taken from. No, that's for you to put in. No. It's not a right or wrong, but we just need to check our heart and say, hey, am I trying to be noticed here? But Jesus calls attention because there's something else he wants to teach us through this widow. He says in verse 42, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. 
And I can imagine the disciples going, serious? Like, I'm not a CPA. I've never sat for it, and I'm not an accountant. But, dude, it doesn't take a, 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 a Albert Einstein to go, that guy put in a lot, she put in a little. Jeez, she didn't get more, he did. And Jesus goes, but see, God's exchange rate is different. How could Jesus say she put in more than all the rest? He says, now look at this. They put in out of their surplus, out of their abundance, out of their excess. But she gave out of her poverty. She put in all that she owned, all that she had to live on. You know, Bob and I have said this before. For a long time, we kind of held to this philosophy. We're not going to talk much about giving. Some of my mentors used to say that. You know, healthy Christians will want to give. They'll be generous in their giving. So for a long time, I didn't say much about giving. And over time, I and Bob and others began to realize, hey, that's not discipleship. Jesus didn't roll that way. He didn't go, you know, if you love me. He talked about our stuff, right? And that, that says a lot about our heart. And so we all have to stop and think about how much stuff do I have? How much resources do I have? Financial and assets. And, and, and then I have to think to myself, as I give, right, should I be more focused on what I give or should I focus on what I give compared to what I keep? See, God doesn't look at your giving by how many zeros are on it, right? But he looks at your motives and my motives, but he also looks at what we have. And so sometimes I kind of chuckle when a, a, a very renowned pastor will go, I don't even take a salary from the church. And I go, wow, that's really cool. But I do know that you've sold a million books. So you don't take a salary from the church, but what about the the, the four million you made on the books, right? We sometimes are impressed by what we think to be excessive. And so Jesus is giving us a new way to think about our giving. So, you know, these, these aren't new questions. Pastor, do I have to give from my gross, right? Or, or you know, how much do I withhold? And Peter asked Jesus that. Do I have to give? He's a fisherman. Do I have to give from my net? All right, I'm not, let me make a note here. Bob warned me not to tell that. Not, no, he didn't. He usually scoops me up later and says. Now, so just think, just from a financial standpoint, that's why I always tell you, keep a record of what you give. Don't deceive yourself. The Bible says, give as the Lord has prospered us. Many of us can and should even be giving more than a tithe. And in many ways, that might be nothing, right? So it's just a, a healthy way for us to think about, okay, Lord, could, could I, out of love for you, out of faith and gratitude, advance the gospel and support the Lord's work more? But I think there's something more here when Jesus says she put in all that she owned. Because I think what he's showing us and Mark is showing us here is that this is the essence of discipleship. Real discipleship is giving ourselves, giving all we have to Christ. It's, Jesus isn't asking for you to turn over your, 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 your routing number and we'll drain your, your account. But this woman, 
she gladly gave all that she had because she loved the Lord. She was willing to sacrifice. You know, there, was, there are other people who will gladly write you a check, but ask them to show up and do some work, and they're like, ah, I, you know, I'm too busy for that. I'll give you a couple bucks if you need it, but don't ask me to make sacrifices. So that's a helpful way to sort of end this discussion. But remember, they didn't have chapter breaks back then. So all of this stuff has been taking place in the temple. So let's not lose the chain of thought. Chapter 13 begins, and as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now remember, Herod's temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. It had been under construction for some, I think, 42 years. Listen to what um, someone said about uh, Herod's temple. It measured 325 meters wide, 500 meters long, with a circumference of a mile. It had a 35-acre enclosure that could accommodate 12 football fields, dropped 12 links in there. The southeast corner of the retaining wall was 15 stories. The blocks of stone were enormous. Josephus reports that some single blocks of stone were 60 feet in length, 11 feet high, 14 feet deep, over a million pounds of stone. The magnitude of the temple used to construct it exceeded any of the other temples in the world. No wonder they were going, wow, Jesus, check out this temple, and it's ours. Jesus just turns the whole thing upside down. He says, you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Like that, I'm not even sure they could begin to grasp that one. Like, what? So, notice the next verse. It says, and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. Wait, we were just in the temple. Now we're on the Mount of Olives. So let me give you a little background here. The Mount of Olives, you had to not only leave the temple, you would leave the city of Jerusalem. You would descend down through what was called the Kidron Valley. You would walk a ways and then you'd have to climb up the Mount of Olives, which was east of the city of Jerusalem. And you could look from the Mount of Olives. It was higher than Jerusalem. So you could look down from the Mount of Olives and you could see the temple. So Jesus just let that sit in their skull for a little bit. See this temple? Not one stone will be... And they're probably like, what the heck is he talking about? And they, Where are we going? And they, they get in. Jesus sits down and now they're all looking across at the temple. And it says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? What will the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? It's really important that you read each gospel individually, okay? Most of the authors knew all the same stuff right? But they, they put what they wanted to put to make the points that they wanted to make, okay? Notice that here, there's nothing about the end of the age or the second coming. That's in Matthew, right? But here, they're simply asking, Jesus says, this, this building is going to be torn to the ground, and they're going, when's that going to happen? So what Jesus begins to do in Mark 13 is to unfold in the first 13 verses what's going to happen in the lifetime of the disciples, okay? 
And as you're reading, you'll note that at times in these gospel accounts, Jesus will then drop something in there that sounds like, well, wait a minute, that seems like it's in the future, hasn't happened yet. And the answer is, that's true. What happened in the first century to the Jews in their temple became a prefigurement of what's going to happen in the last days. But we want to make sure to read in its context. So what Jesus is primarily concerned here is these guys are concerned about prophecy and Jesus is concerned about practical Christian living. They want to decode the future and Jesus is like, I'm more concerned that you don't desert the faith. So as you and I read through this chapter, we're going to do it for two weeks. The main thing he's going to say, look at verse 9, be on guard. Verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. So let, let's, let's, let's assume here that Jesus' primary point is, what I'm about to tell you is not so that you can save some money and not go to the next prophecy conference and find out about the Gog and Magog and the signs of the times. As you think about history unfolding, always be ready. Because as Jesus is going to tell us in this chapter, he literally says, beware because no one knows the day or the hour. So stop trying to pin the minute down and worry more about what does it look like not only to be ready, but, but here is, is a principal thing I want you to think about for this morning. In verse 13, Jesus says, he who endures to the end will be saved. That's really important. When you watch the Boston Marathon, there's a lot more people start than finish, right? When it comes to Christianity, there are a lot more people that pray the prayer, raise their hand, profess the faith than finish, right? And so one of the things that the Bible emphasizes, the New Testament stresses, is the importance of perseverance. The importance of not just starting your Christian experience by professing to follow Christ, but continuing to cling to him, to endure, to patiently follow him, come hell or high water, until death or Jesus comes back. Much like marriage. I solemnly promise till death do us part. So whenever people quit, we're always left with a question mark. What just happened? Okay? And for some of you, this is very painful because you have kids or spouses or parents that you love who used to call themselves born-again Christians and followers of Christ, and they don't anymore, and we're, and we're left scratching our head. The Bible calls that departure apostasy. It's called falling away from the faith. So what Jesus is trying to do is to prepare these disciples in that time to go, listen, my bigger concern is that you endure, that regardless of what happens to you, you don't fall away from the faith. You don't renounce me. And before we read this, I want to raise sort of a question here for, for you to think about. What are some of the reasons why people do fall away from the faith? What causes people who, Billy was the president of youth group, but now he says he doesn't believe anything. If any of you are watching Joshua Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, if you're following, you know, he actually has now come out and said, based on what the Bible says, I'm not a Christian, Right? How does that happen? Well, I want to suggest that the Bible teaches there are a number of ways that Satan can lead any one of us who professes to be a believer to fall away from the faith. He's very clever. 
So a couple things that I wrote down, and then, then we'll go through that. One of the first things that he can do to cause people to fall away is he deceives us. We allow ourselves to be deceived. Another thing he does is he seeks to destroy us. In some cultures, there's persecution, right? We just don't experience it the same way. But even some of us are experiencing persecution from our own family. For other people, he leads them astray through the delights of sin. Like, you really don't want it. You re- Look what you gave up, right? Is this really worth it? So Jesus is going to unfold for us some things that we should think about, but ultimately with the goal of saying, what's going to keep me from falling away? So let's begin then in verse 5. So they said to Jesus, when are these things going to be fulfilled? And he said, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. Okay? So here's the first thing that you and I need to note. In that first century, there were several people who claimed to be the Messiah. One of them was named Thutis. You can read about this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 5, they talk about how these false messiahs led people astray. They also talk about an Egyptian that did that. And thousands of Jews believed that these two guys were the Messiah, and they followed after them. So I'm not concerned that today one of you is going to say, hey, I met this guy. I don't think Jesus is the Messiah. I think it's um, this guy over here. But I still am very concerned that Satan wants to lead you astray. In fact, Paul told the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, he said, be on your guard for savage wolves will arise from your midst and will lead you astray, will lead your flock astray. So one of the things Satan does is he deceives people, right? And he often deceives people through people who have this book in their hand, right? This explains why, this is just one of the many things. In all of the the sexuality discussions that are going on and whether homosexuality is appropriate, you can go to many churches right now and you can have people tell you that it's okay. You can be a Christian and a practicing homosexual, right? And, and they try clever arguments to say, oh, you're misunderstanding this, you're misunderstanding this. The Bible warns about this. It says there will be many false teachers who will twist the scriptures to their own destruction. You will hear people who call themselves born-again Christians who say there's, there's many ways to get to heaven. In fact, I, I, I nearly choked when Donald Trump last week said, evangelical leaders are telling me this is the greatest time that I've seen We're seeing unprecedented revival in Christianity. And then he says, and they're even seeing unprecedented revival among all the religions in America. And I'm thinking to myself, what born-again Christian would say, this is exciting. The Mormon church is growing. The Jehovah's Witnesses are doing great. I'm going, there's no way, right? But the danger is, I know of people in this church who have bailed because they started listening to somebody right? So this deceiver may be a great scientist who's teaching us the new way, right? But sadly, there are some people that are preaching every week on television, and they have huge flocks of people, and all they're talking about is comfort and how you can be blessed and happy. 
And there's no substance, there's no sin, there's no repentance, there's no call to faith, right? There's no cross, there's no Jesus is the only way, and hell is real. And, and people are getting sucked into that. The Bible says in the last days, men will accumulate teachers after their own desires. So we need to be careful. Jesus says, don't let anyone lead you astray. But then he says something really interesting, and we love this stuff. He says in verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that's not yet the end. And, and we go, signs of the times. Are you following what's going on in Kashmir right now, how the, the, the Pakistanis and India are fighting? Over? Are you watching what's going on right now with the Kurds between Syria and Gog and Magog are coming down? Signs of the times. Are you seeing what's going on in Lebanon? And I'm going... This was going on in the first century. There was a big rumor of wars that went out in the 40s that Caligula, Caligula and, and, and the Jewish people were going to end up in a great battle, which, by the way, it happened in AD 66. Under the zealots, the Jews revolted and there was a massive war, right? So to these guys, Jesus isn't going, don't worry about this. This is for 2,000 years from now when Syria and Lebanon no, this was to them. There were wars and rumors of wars right then. And then he said, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. You're like, I just heard about that. Did you? There was another tsunami. But wait a minute. There were earthquakes in the first century. If you've been taking Pastor John's class on Tuesday night, as you're going through the book of Colossians, you remember, I think, learning about an earthquake in Phrygia, which was in that region. Most of you, did any of you take Latin like me? It didn't do so well. Um, but um, remember Vesuvius? That happened in the 60s, right? That happened in the lifetime. So it wasn't like they're like, oh, this is, no. They were having wars. They were having earthquakes. Then Jesus says, there will be famines, right? Well, there was a huge famine in Judea, during the first century. That's why the Apostle Paul, went, wherever he went, we, he would collect from the Gentile churches to support these impoverished, persecuted Christians in Judea who not only were being persecuted by their family, but also were going through a famine. So Jesus says, these are the beginning of birth pangs. So I want you to hear it with their ears first. What were, what were these guys thinking when he's talking to them? They weren't thinking, don't worry, this is for days to come. So then he says to them, be on your guard, for they will deliver you up to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogue, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. When did that happen? Anybody here ever read the book of Acts? It's exactly what happened. Flogged in the synagogues. Paul stood before Agrippa. He stood before Felix. This was happening right then in the first century, exactly what Jesus said. Many of this generation, you're going to go through this right now, okay? This isn't all future stuff. But then you say, but look at verse 10. This gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Aha. See, that proves this is talking about in the future. And I go, well, not necessarily. Remember how the book of Acts starts? Jesus said, you'll be my witness in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then 
to the uttermost parts of the earth, which in those days, from that perspective, it would have been Rome or a little bit beyond there to Spain. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 1, the gospel has gone forth to all the world. Okay? So I'm not sure that Jesus was, was, was here. I'm not saying that he didn't talk about that. But here he was talking about how the Jesus film will one day reach all the nations. While I believe he spoke of that, but I don't think that's what he meant here, right? I think these events were in the first century. So he's telling these guys, when they arrest you, look at verse 11, not if they arrest you, when they arrest you. And when they deliver you up, don't be anxious beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. Now, this was encouraging and comforting. See, I think the bigger question is not, how will I be a witness? You know, can I come up? Do I remember what I learned from the seminar? It's, will I renounce Christ to save my life? Because that's what was going on in the first century. Tacticus, a Roman or a historian from that time, talked about Christians who denounced the faith, right? And not only did they denounce the faith, then they, they, they squealed on others. They're like, I'll t- no, I, I, I'm not following Christ, right? But I can tell you who is. You should go check them out, right? So Jesus says, look, the Spirit of God will give you words to say. But then he says, brother will deliver a brother to death. A father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name. Who's reading this? We think that Mark was writing to Roman Christians. If you were a Roman Christian, you got the Stubby Award. It stinks to be you, right? See, we have to remember that in the first century, not everywhere on planet Earth was everybody being slaughtered. But that shouldn't be too hard for us to understand because right now there's a lot of people being slaughtered for Christ. But we don't even think about that because it's not coming with our borders. Because after all, the Bible, Donald Trump, and the American flag are all rolled up into one thing. And I'm going, no. We're just very blessed and privileged that God has kept this American experiment for the last 200 years from severe persecution. But I don't think it, it takes a real prognosticator to go, Things look like they might be changing. So let's look at what Jesus says at the end. But it is the one who endures to the end who will be saved. So if, as I read that, I'm, I'm asking myself, what can I do to make sure that I try to endure to the end? What should I be thinking about that might help me to avoid falling away? Okay. So I want to close with a couple thoughts. I think these things are the things that the Lord wants us to remember. Number one, we need to remember that present adversities are opportunities for gospel advancement. It just is a fact. Persecution has often been the catalyst for proclamation. I don't like that. I wish it wasn't that way. I wish someone didn't come up with this clever but true reality. It's the blood of Christian martyrs that's the seed of the church. But the reality is it's true. Talk to Pastor Austin about what's going on right now among the Kurds. This isn't going to be on the news. But as they're going through these civil wars, there's also great revival 
Many Muslims are coming to Christ in the midst of terrible pain. So it's just helpful to remember that. More people have been killed for Christ in the last hundred years than the other ones all put together. But out of sight, out of mind. The problem is some Christians have then come to the conclusion that I know what to do. That's why I pray for persecution in America. What this country needs is a good persecution. That'll straighten us out. That'll cleanse us. That'll part the sheep and the goats. And I'm going, no, please stop talking. The Bible never tells us to pray for persecution. In fact, 1 Timothy 2 says this, pray for your governor, your king, and those in authority that we Christians may lead a quiet life. In other words, don't pray for persecution. Pray that we're not persecuted. Right? And then he says this, so that we Christians may lead a quiet life in godliness and dignity. I think the biggest problem with American Christianity is while we're not being persecuted, we're also not being godly and different from the world. So that it has been frequently said, the reason there aren't more Christians in America is because of Christians in America. We don't know how long we're going to have religious freedom when we're not going to be persecuted for Christ, when there's not going to be a cost. But don't pray for persecution. We should praise God. Regardless of your political position, we should praise God that we're still able to do this, and I'm not worried about the government coming and, and, and locking us down. And we should pray that the Lord would, number one, protect us, but number two, that he would revive the church. If there's any hope for America, it's not going to be through politics. It's going to be through praying Christians on their knees, seeking God and churches that are, that are living for Christ and praying and giving and serving and showing such remarkable love that the world's noticing something. Another thing that, that I can do is not just to remember that these adversities are opportunities, but secondly, keep the end in sight and therefore pray that if persecution comes, I won't bail because of trouble but I'll believe and trust, right? I don't know what I'm going to do if persecution comes. I don't want to fall into the same trap Peter did. Jesus, I got your back. You go down, lean on me, and Jesus is like, Pete, stop talking. Here's your problem, Pete. Your spirit is willing, and we could all go, everybody who believes you're ready to die for Christ, raise your hand, pound it out, let's go get them. But I'm going, maybe what we should do is be on our knees. Jesus said, pray that you might have strength to stand before the Son of Man. In other words, I have to be mindful that I have to watch myself and pray that God will keep me from falling away. So I want to say something theologically that I've said to you many times. I don't believe if you're a born-again Christian that you can lose your salvation. So people go, you believe in once saved, always saved, preacher. I'm like, well, it depends on what you mean by that. Romans chapter 8 says, if God predestined you, he called you. If he called you, he justified you. And everyone he justified, he glorified. Your soul is safe and secure from all alarm. Say amen if you believe that. Philippians 1.6 says, God began a good work in me, and he will perform it to the day of Christ. My Christian life is not a relay race where Jesus hands me the baton and says, I did lap one, you do lap two. The Christian life is a wheelbarrow race. I throw myself onto Jesus and say, take me home. However... As true as that is, we have to guard our hearts and not be careless. So yes, you can rest in the security that Jesus bought you, he called you, and he keeps you. That is, if you're Christian, 
Don't rest until you become a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you're kept by the power of God. But the Bible still warns us, be careful, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart and falling away from God. Right? Nobody's walking with Jesus one day and departs from the faith the next day. Satan's clever. So, so keep the end in sight and pray that you'll persevere. And be careful, right? So for example, remember, loyalty to Christ will always be loathsome to the world. This is why I'm like, please stop saying that. I never talk about Christ. I just witnessed by my life. That's a cop-out. George Orwell once said this, and I wouldn't commend him necessarily to you, but he did say something about truth. He said, let me find it here. Oh, it was such a good quote. Don't lose it. Oh, here it is. The further a society... Now, this sound like America. The further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those who speak it. That sound like any, anything you've heard? So we're told in the Bible, loyalty to Christ is loathsome to the world. So, so we have to realize this. Listen... If you're going to live for Christ, not everyone's going to like you. You're like, well, that's fine. I don't like my neighbors anyway. But Jesus goes, yeah, 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 but I got to come into your home. Because we also remember this, that discipleship can even cost us division from our family. That's tough. But notice what he said. He goes, father will deliver up mother. He said, children will rise up against parents. I know we have people here who have pretty much lost their family in a certain way. Their families disowned them or, 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 or truly made it hard for them to follow Christ. And Jesus is going, that's part of what it means to be a disciple. And so, so we're watching and we're praying. We're saying, Lord, help us. Help us to finish. So I think if, if there was one takeaway, I'd say, okay, so basically this whole passage is, is kind of saying discipleship's not about predicting the future, but persevering in the present. It's, it's, it's learning to watch and to pray. It's making perseverance my priority. Not just perseverance in believing, but perseverance in living the Christian life. You can't just give up and go back to your sins. right? You can't just quit because somebody in the church was mean to you or because they hurt your feelings or because your, your dad won't speak to you. So let's pray for perseverance. Now, I'll give you an example. I thank God. Some of you know one of my kids, my son, was a heroin addict. So I felt that pain. I know what it's like to wonder if he's going to, what the next call is going to be. And he doesn't mind me saying this because he said it many times. Is it the morgue or the police station, right? But thank God the Lord has turned the th my children and they're all following him. But I'm not going to assume that's a guarantee that they're going to keep following him. We should pray for our families to persevere. I'm already praying for my grandchildren who I don't think yet have been regenerated, that God would awaken them to faith and then he'll keep them. I'm not writing my book. I'll give my words on my deathbed. I hope I'll say, I've finished the course now, but it's not over. So pray for all of us. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends in this church to persevere, right? And frankly, there are some empty seats, and some of you know of somebody who used to be. And there's too many people for five pastors to go after them all. 
The Bible says in James chapter 5, if anyone strays from the truth and one turns them back, you've saved a soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. So let's pray to the Lord that we'll be a church full of people who are growing, who are emboldened by Christ through the Holy Spirit, who will recognize that Christ hasn't called us to a life of ease. But he does want the gospel to go out. Not about whether I preserve my life. It's that I'm faithful to Christ until the end. So the one thing I do want to say is that some of you are like, you can't persevere in something you haven't even professed to. There has to come a starting point. Even people who are claiming alternative lifestyles have a coming out, right? To come to Jesus is to say, I believe this stuff enough that I'm going to confess him with my mouth. I'm not going to do this this morning, but I'm going to do it one day. I'm going to ask if you are a Christian and you have not yet come out and told people, stand in your seat, right there in your seat and say, I claim Jesus as my Lord. I confess Jesus as my Lord. It's coming. I'm going to ask you to do that, right? If you haven't put your trust in Christ and you're not committed to following him, don't wait. Jesus says, come. Everyone who comes to me, I won't cast out. If you don't know whether you've come to him, don't go another day. Talk to somebody before you go. But let's praise God, he that endures to the end. The Lord's going to keep us, isn't he? But he's not going to keep us because we're careless. He's going to keep us as we keep on our knees. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. He went before us, the author and finisher for our faith. He endured the cross already that he might show us what it means to lay down our lives. Lord, sometimes it's easier probably to give our life to die than it is to to give our lives daily, to die to ourself. But thank you, Lord, for your keeping power. May we grow as disciples, and may we depend more and more on you. And thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit. Bless our fellowship and continue to enlarge our church because the Holy Spirit is calling to himself all of your elect. We give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day. God bless you. Read the rest of chapter 13 for next week.